from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, listeners. Hey, everybody. We are here for another episode of our podcast. And today we have a really special theme or a special topic we're excited to talk about, which is your pilgrimage. Um, you heard about it on lots of podcasts. Well, now it's happened. Just fresh off the airplane as we're recording this. Yeah. Still a little recovering, still <laughs> recovering a little bit from the jet lag of it all. Yeah. It was a marvelous, marvelous pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Well, we're so happy you're back, but, you know, as your family, because we missed you. I missed you guys. That was rough. That was well, that was 10 days away. You know, I'll say this. It's way better now. I mean, the past several years. First, we had Skype and then yeah. FaceTime. Thank like, you, God, for FaceTime. It does really make a big it difference. It a huge difference. For us at home and for you on the trip. But, Thank you, God, for FaceTime. Yeah, so we're trying great. to tell our kids how the world didn't used to be this way. They can't. <laughs> They can't quite imagine a world without FaceTime. Uh, yeah, that is helpful, but we're happy you're back. And we also feel like we've received lots of blessings through you from your time and happy to sh- pass some of that on to our podcast listeners Yeah, we thought here. it would be worth dedicating a whole episode just to this experience of being in the Holy Land, which was my first time. And it was, as so many people say, you go to the Holy Land and you don't come back the same. It's so impactful and it really was for me it was it's something that I'll be unpacking for for months and years mm-hmm. I'm sure yeah and I think I can say right off the bat I'll, I'll never read the gospels the same way again yeah is that one of the first like big impressions you have from your time there yeah they call the holy land the fifth gospel and I think it's a great wow great summing up of the experience of it you see things and know things and experience things that just make the stories you've heard since you're a child come alive in a new mm-hmm, way. Mm-hmm. One of the real aha moments was standing on the top of a, a precipice in Nazareth. Mm-hmm. It's not the actual site where they wanted to throw Jesus off the cliff, but for tourist reasons, they they say this is where they wanted to throw Jesus off the cliff. But our our tour guide pointed out why that couldn't possibly be oh, wow. the actual cliff. But anyway, you're on this precipice in Nazareth, and you're getting just a full 360 view of the land. And right off, not even all that far away, maybe, I don't know, five to seven miles away is Mount Tabor or Mount Tabor, however you say it, mm-hmm. where the transfiguration took place. And to see that in that perspective was really eye-opening for me because that was a mountain that Jesus would have known, you know, yeah. growing up in Nazareth. Right. He would have hiked that mountain with his friends or St. Joseph would have taken him up there for an overnight, you know, a camp out or something. It was, it's just, you know, I think of the lay of the land where I live and the sites that I knew, the places I would go, I'd ride my bike to. Obviously, Jesus didn't have a bike to ride. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you, you, as a boy, you're, you're an explorer and you, you go places and you're, you're hiking and, and exploring. And Mount Tabor, or Tabor, tomato, tomato, I'm not sure how to say it, would have been something that he was very familiar with. And the fact that he chose that place to reveal his full glory 
Um, you just it just changes to see it with your own eyes. We went up we went up the mountain of Transfiguration and mm-hmm. we had mass up there, but it was even more impactful from the vantage point of Nazareth to see it in the distance and mm-hmm. not even that far of a distance. Really, that's yeah. one example of how being there, you get a sense of the lay of the land that you just wouldn't have, yeah, uh, and don't have just by reading the Gospels. That it makes the whole reality of the incarnation all that more real it really happened he really lived here this is really a place on planet Mm -hmm. earth where he he dwelt and lived and grew up as a boy and was a teenager there and hung out with his friends and hiked that mountain and and had his family times with with joseph and mary that was that was a big impression yeah that's awesome and i remember you also saying uh, one day you were at the sea of galilee and just sensing the importance of that area in Jesus's life. I don't know if you want to share anything about yeah, that with our listeners. That was our first day. We went on a boat ride out into the Sea of Galilee, which by the way is not a sea. It's a lake. Mm-hmm. It's a freshwater lake and it's not even all that big. Mm-hmm. You can see, you know, clear to the other side. So in terms of lake sizes, we think in America of the Great Lakes, it's nothing even close to what we would call a Great Lake. So mm-hmm. That was eye-opening to me, but I, I had this sense, and it really like grabbed me. I felt this lump in my throat as I was out on this boat, that Jesus was taking me on a tour of his favorite places. Wow. Like, when somebody comes to visit me here, and I want them to get to know me, I'll take them to Holtwood Pinnacle, which is mm-hmm. one of our favorite spots overlooking the Susquehanna River. I'll take them to my favorite places to see and hike and mm-hmm. Central Market and downtown Lancaster, you know, right. those kind of places. The sites that are important. The sites that are important mm-hmm. to me, sites that where I grew up. And, and if I want people to know more about me, I'll take them to these places when they come right. to visit. And I felt like Jesus was taking me around to his favorite mm-hmm. places. Mm-hmm. And the Sea of Galilee was certainly one of his favorite places. Yeah. 70 to 80% of his ministry was on this lake. And being there, I, you just had the sense When you say of, on the lake, you meaning, do you mean like the towns around yeah, it? Yeah, the towns around the lake. Okay. Uh, this is where he spent 70 plus percent gotcha. of his time preaching. And mm-hmm. um, being there was just an experience of intimacy with with. Jesus that I had yeah. never had before. Yeah. In uh, that way. You also told me about seeing some caves near the um, Sea of Galilee. Yeah. And what did the tour guide tell you about that? Yeah, or? that this could very likely be one of the places where when we read Jesus went off to a quiet place to mm-hmm. pray. Mm-hmm. This could this cave in the side of the hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee could very well be Wow, where Jesus would sit and pray, mm. and it's it's off the, it's not a, like a, a super touristy attraction, you yeah. know. So not a lot of people know about this cave, and uh, Jason Clark, who had been to the Holy Land ten or eleven years ago, had said to the tour guide, "Hey, is it possible that some of us could go to this cave? Is that still accessible?" And so some of us hiked up this hill and mm-hmm. um, sat in this cave and. Yeah, it was an experience of, again, just a, a an intimacy with Jesus to think that he he sat here, he 
he prayed here most likely. It was deeply moving. It's an mm-hmm. experience you can't you can't really put into words. You have to you have to feel it. Mm. It feels like in a way, you know, these first things that you're sharing are like things that you felt the Lord was showing you, leading you in a way, but you were also leading pilgrims. So I'm curious how that came together for you and for your pilgrim group. You know, we're all about theology of the body and how did that play into your pilgrimage themes? Yeah, the the theme throughout the week, guiding people into a theology of the body themed pilgrimage, which which seems even silly to say, because if we understand what a pilgrimage is, and if we understand what our faith is, mm-hmm. even though people wouldn't use the words, every pilgrimage is a theology of the body pilgrimage, be- every Christian pilgrimage, because mm-hmm. our faith is the faith in the incarnation. Mm-hmm. And to, to even, to so to call it a theology of the body pilgrimage sounds odd to my ears, having been there and gone through it, because the whole thing thing is bringing your body mm-hmm. to the places where Christ's body mm-hmm. was. Right. So you didn't have to get over a hurdle there. That no, was, no, no. That was like so, given. <laughs> yeah, it's so, it's so inherent to the experience. Right. Nonetheless, you know, I, I was trying to, to shine a light mm-hmm. for the pilgrims on, on what the theology of the body in particular has to say about these holy places. Yes. I'm interested. Yeah, it was <laughs> it was cool. It was really fun. It was really yeah. exciting. The overarching theme of the pilgrimage I took from uh, something my mentor and professor said 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget it. Sitting in the classroom. This is Monsignor Lorenzo Albacetti. Uh, our listeners, our faithful listeners out there, you've heard me talk about Monsignor Albacetti before. I may have even shared this little story on a previous podcast, did I? Are yeah, I think so. I think I so, yeah. Okay, so so <laughs> for those who haven't heard this story, uh, so Albacetti, first of all, you have to know Albacetti. He was a, a sign of contradiction, this guy. He was a mystic at heart. He had this deep, mystical understanding of who Jesus was and who we are as human beings. He had mystical encounters with the Lord, uh, but he was an overweight, chain-smoking, salty-tongued monsignor mm-hmm. who who <laughs> scandalized some people and and absolutely enthralled others and I was I was in the camp that was absolutely enthralled right. by this guy and one day he walks into the class uh, inhaling the cigarette and he just stands at the podium and says the scandal of the hick <laughs> of the of the hick. I'm like, what is he talking? The scandal of the hick. Well, this became the theme of our pilgrimage, the scandal of the hick. And the hick is Latin for here. And he went on to explain, Monsignor Albacetti, in the classroom 25 years ago, that when you go to the Holy Land and you go to the Basilica of the Annunciation, mm-hmm. on the altar, which now marks what is believed to be the site where mm-hmm. Mary said yes awesome. to God's marriage proposal, Yes, uh, there is inscribed on that altar the Latin words, verbum caro hic factum est, which means the word was made flesh here. Here. Mm. Hic, hic, here. The scandal of the hic. So this was the theme of our pilgrimage, that we were in the place 
I mean, I just, I can't even, even as I say it, it's just, I'm scratching my, my. And, but I need you to flesh out that word scandal. Yeah, what, yeah. what do you mean there? The scandal of the, okay, the scandal, the, the incarnation is a scandal that God, the, the almighty God, the e- eternal God entered time. Okay. And to, to enter time is itself a scandal, but the scandal of the hick is that the the God who is omnipresent, he's everywhere, mm. also humbled himself to the confines of human nature and entered the world at this time, at this place, here. Mm. This is what the, the mind cannot mm-hmm. fathom this. And that's why it's a scandal mm. that that the God who is everywhere was here in this time, in this place, and and there's this, in, in theological terms, we talk about the universal and the particular, mm-hmm. that for, for God's love to have any meaning for us in particular, we need this scandal of the hick, that it's not just this, infinity is an abstraction to us as yeah. human beings. It's mm-hmm. God God will remain an abstraction in our minds without the scandal of the incarnation. It's the incarnation that allows us to feel and and touch and encounter God really and truly. And this is continued in the sacramental life of the church. The Eucharist is a scandal. It's it's where we see God, it's where we touch God, it's where we eat God. This is the scandal of our faith. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. If you do not, you don't have life in you. And even his own disciples 2,000 years ago said, this is a hard teaching. Who, mm-hmm. who can accept it? And we, we have to wrestle with this scandal. Number one, that God has flesh. I mean, for, for God to say, eat my flesh, he has to have flesh. The fact that God has flesh is scandalous. Uh, we, you know, as Christians, we grow up with this. If you're raised in a Christian home, this just kind of seems normal. But it, it goes in one ear and out the other if we don't really wrestle with the scandal of the claim that the eternal, infinite, omnipresent God took on flesh in a certain time, in a certain place, in the womb of a very particular woman. This is the scandal of our faith, and the pilgrimage to the Holy Land was precisely an entering ever more deeply into that scandal. And I, I want to quote Albacete here, the study guide that... Um, all the pilgrims had had certain notes in there that I was drawing from in my reflections. And, and this is one of my, my presentations to the pilgrims. This is quoting from Albacete. He says, it happened in a specific time, in a specific place. Verbum caro hic factum est. The word was made flesh here. It's not an abstraction, he says. It's a factum. <laughs> if I like we, that. Yeah, yeah, me too. If we miss the time and space bodily concreteness of this factum, of this fact, we miss the gospel message entirely, he says. And this is what was really brought home on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, this the thisness, the hereness, mm-hmm. the the factness of a man who walked this earth in this place, kicked this dust with his feet, mm-hmm. who claimed 
he was the great I am who claimed he's not just some other special teacher, he's not just some other prophet, but he is God. He is eternal. You know, the, the, the Pharisees were understandably absolutely scandalized by this guy who says, before Abraham was, I am. Right. And they're like, what, 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 what? what? You you're, you're, know, you're not even 50 years old. What do you mean you've seen Abraham? What, what? Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus claimed. I mean, that's a claim <laughs> to the Hebrew mind and to everyone who understands that God is the I am. That's a claim that I'm God. And this guy who was to all appearances just another human being claiming to be God, that's the scandal. Mm-hmm. And this is what Albacete is getting at when he says, if we miss this space and time, bodily concreteness, this factum, this reality that, that the word was made flesh in this time, in this place, we miss the gospel message entirely. This is crucial, he says. We have this strange tendency to want to fly away from the precise, he says, to want to fly away from the concrete, from the this and the here. Jesus says in the gospel, this is eternal life. Eternal life is not a concept. It's not an idea, Alba said, he says. It is something concrete. It is something touched, felt, seen. It's something encountered with all of our senses. And then he concludes, we must develop a sensibility. That's the word, he says. We must develop our senses to, to sense the presence of eternal life in our world right here. The scandal of the hick. And, and here's where theology of the body really helps us because we have this idea, and I, I shared this over and over again with the pilgrims. The general religious idea is that we need to escape the physical world, and we need to escape the flesh to encounter mm-hmm. spiritual things. Mm-hmm. Christianity, and this is the scandal, Christianity is exactly the opposite movement. It's not escaping the flesh to encounter God. It's rather God entering this world, God taking on flesh to encounter us. Mm. I th- I sense the gratitude that you just being there and reflecting on that each day that the gratitude to our God which we should all be grateful to our God but the the particular ways that you can experience that obviously the awe and wonder of it but just the thank you yeah. thank you yeah, yeah 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 thank you thank you because this is all all the goodness that comes to us because of his life here. here. Yes, yes. And I'm also feeling just a gratitude over all the centuries of people preserving these spots because imagine if it were all bulldozed and paved yeah, and yeah, you this... had to just like go by, you know, okay, well, I'm standing on this street corner, which once upon a time was where it was. Like, no, it's not a, just a street corner. It's a, it's a beautiful destination for all of us who have the eyes to see what's awesome about it. This was another thing that opened my eyes is going to these sites which have layers of archaeological history to them. Mm -hmm. You see with your own eyes, okay, the Byzantines built cathedrals over these holy sites in the 300s and 400s, St. Helen when the Roman Empire was 
was officially declared Christian, mm-hmm. St. Helen came to the Holy Land and interestingly, the uh, you know the pagan leaders wanted to prevent Christians from coming to these holy sites. From the very beginning, these sites were a place of pilgrimage mm-hmm. and the pagan leaders tried to pave them over, cover them over mm. with their own temples and such to prevent the Christians. But this enabled Helen to know exactly where the, um. to know where exactly the holy sites were and have these Byzantine cathedrals built over them. And I remember as a boy learning that these holy sites are now, you know, like you can't go to Calvary and see the actual mountain because there's a, a basilica over top of right. it. And I remember thinking that that sounded strange to me and even a little sad. I wanted to go stand on Calvary mm. out in the Aww. open, you know. Yeah. But seeing these basilicas and the lairs. So I was I was saying this earlier that so you have the Byzantine lair, then you have the uh, Crusader lair. There's often the Crusaders would build something because by that time the Byzantine churches had often crumbled or right. had been torn down by invaders. So then the Crusaders built their cathedrals, mm-hmm. and then the Franciscans in the 1700s built their cathedrals. Oh my God! And there are even some sites like the site of the Annunciation, which has a, a cathedral that was from the the mid 20th century. Mm-hmm. So you have these layers of churches, mm-hmm. and you can see the walls and ruins from each of the layers. It just really gave you a sense of. Gosh, 2,000 years of history is a long time. Yeah, you're seeing the passage of time yeah. in physical objects. Yes, yes. That, and that's another thing you can't really feel without seeing it. Uh-huh. And from one perspective, 2,000 years in the history of the, the planet is not long at all. Um, but it's long enough for, for cathedrals that we think last forever to come and go, to yeah. crumble. That was eye-opening. Mm-hmm. And Father Loya, who was our chaplain, one of our chaplains, Father Justin Brady and Father Loya. Uh, Father Loya is a Byzantine Catholic priest. Yeah. So you're talking about Byzantine cathedrals. So does he have a different perspective on the history yeah. there and the, the, the Christians the, there, I guess? The history that he brought and the insight that he brought as mm-hmm. an Eastern Catholic was really, really rich. Yeah. Uh, St. John Paul II in his document, The Light of the East, hmm. says that that we need as a church to learn how to breathe with both lungs. And if you, like me, were raised in uh, the Latin church... Um, Meaning just Roman Catholic. Roman Catholic mm-hmm. church. The Roman Catholic church, I should put the emphasis on Roman, um, because being a Roman Catholic is only one of several ways to be a Catholic. Mm-hmm. There are these the churches of the East... A little bit of the history here. So uh, up until 1054, the churches of the East and the West, which which developed different liturgical traditions and cultural expressions of Christianity, were all unified by the Pope. But then in 1054, there was the Great Schism, and the churches of the East split away and were no longer longer considered themselves under the authority of the Pope. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then later on in the 1500s, some of these Eastern churches came back into communion with the Pope. So these are what we now call the the Eastern Catholic churches. Mm -hmm. They have the Eastern traditions, they have the Eastern liturgy, but they're in union with with the Pope of Rome. 
the they're the the bishops that you see with different kinds of hats yes. in those like pope funeral processions right. and things that's like right. that. <laughs> that's right, in different vestments. Yeah. <laughs> so Father Loya is a just the real basic <laughs> way to understand this. What hat does the guy yeah, wear? <laughs> <laughs> the, so, yeah, the Byzantines wear different vestments. And this actually came up. It was a sad point on the pilgrimage at one point because these holy sites have a long history of being fought over for control by the Catholics and the churches of the East, the Orthodox churches. And there is a somewhat peaceful accord that has been agreed to as to how these holy sites will be mm. made yeah, open to made people. Made open to mm-hmm. people and who who... Whose praise here when and the Franciscans and the Orthodox and the Coptics and the Armenians and the, the very various expressions of Christianity are are all represented, including the Protestants. And there's, you know, through painful trial and error processes, there's strict agreements as to who gets to pray when and how. Wow. And it came out sadly, you know, Father Loya, Byzantine priest, we were scheduled to say mass just a stone's throw, not even that, 10 feet from where Calvary is, because Calvary itself is controlled by the Greek Orthodox. But just to the right of Calvary is a a Roman Catholic altar. Mm -hmm. And Father Loya had been concelebrating in his Eastern vestments at the various places, but he was not allowed to concelebrate wearing Eastern vestments at the Roman altar because of the controversy about who controls what um, when we were at Calvary. And that was, that was a sad oh. point of just, here we are at the very place that Christ's body was rent, mm. was split open. Mm. And there's still these painful, there are still these painful divisions in the body of Christ. And Father Loya was, was, uh, was told that if he were to vest as an Eastern priest, even though he's Catholic, uh, if he were to wear Eastern vestments, no, only on the other side of Calvary can you say wow. the Eastern prayers. You can't say them here. You can't vest here oh my goodness. in your Eastern vestments. It's just, it was, a, it was a sad reminder of the divisions that are still in the body of Christ, mm-hmm. and we must pray for this unity in the body of Christ. There's a divorce. There's a divorce among Christians, that is sad, sad, mm-hmm. sad, sad. Yeah. I once heard it said, and it needs to be fleshed out. I'd love to read a doctoral dissertation on this, that uh, every split in Christendom can be traced to a dispute about the nature of marriage. Uh, I think that's very insightful because we have made, with all these rifts in the body of Christ, we have made of the bridegroom a polygamist, so to speak, mm. And we, we need to be, there's one bride. We need to find the way to unity. So we felt that at Calvary. Uh, I'll, I'll add here while I'm talking about Calvary, one of the takeaways that was really, I'm still pondering it, I, and it was unexpected. I had no idea that we would see this with our own eyes. But when you go underneath Calvary, underneath, there are, there's a, like a, a crypt church or something mm-hmm. underneath like sort of cut out of the hill side? Uh, not cut out of, but if the basilica did not, did not exist, this altar is at the base of Calvary. Okay. So at the base, you can go to the top of Calvary and okay. you go under this altar, which is a, an altar of, a, of the Greek Orthodox Church. Mm-hmm. And you can put your hand in a little hole 
and um, wow. touch touch the top of Calvary. Wow. It was a wow moment. Yeah. Um, but if you go below that altar, uh-huh. there's another altar underneath. You have to go down a set of steps. Okay. Underneath there is an altar, and behind that altar, you there's a glass cutout. Okay. And you can see Calvary with this crack, this rupture in it. And geologists confirmed that that crack happened from an earthquake 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what it says in the that's Bible. That's what it says in the Bible. Oh, my goodness. That there was an earthquake wow. when Christ died. And when you were there, you told me about that. And I remember just feeling it in a new way. Like it's not just information that comes in and out of your mind, you feel it in your heart. Yeah. Here is the earth made by our Lord, yeah. kind of being rent by his death, yeah. being shaken, being, being changed. Yeah. yeah. And it's so powerful, that connection to the Almighty. Ugh. This was one of the, the, th- the beautiful themes that came out as we made this pilgrimage was this very idea of holy land, Hmm. that the earth, that the rock of Calvary, that this land itself is holy. Well, what what does that mean? And here here again, John Paul II's teaching in his Theology of the Body shines such a brilliant light on this idea of holy land. Listen to this. This is from the prophet... Isaiah, this is Isaiah 45, verse 8. Let the earth open and salvation bud forth. Mm. We hear this especially during Advent in our preparation for Christmas and in the Christmas season. Let the earth open and salvation bud forth. There is this profound connection that we as Catholics, with a proper Catholic understanding of creation, we have to reclaim. It's kind of been usurped by a new age spirituality, and I'm talking about the idea of Mother Earth. Mm-hmm. But this is Catholic cosmology. This is a sacramental understanding that the Earth itself is in a very real way a mother in that the Earth receives the seed that brings forth new life, right? Jesus himself, how many parables about the kingdom are compared to seeds and soil? And his very death on the cross is compared to this. He says, unless the the seed fall into the ground and die, it cannot bear forth new life. But the earth that brings forth that new life is mater, Mm. matter, Mm. right? Mother, mater, matter. The one thing that God from eternity does not have is a mother. And this was one of the themes of the pilgrimage as well as we are entering into the mystery of the incarnation, that the moment God takes on matter, God also takes on mater, Mm. a mother. Mater is the Latin word. Mater is the Latin for mother, Mm -hmm. right? So there's this profound connection between matter, earth, and mater, mother. The idea of Mary being espoused by God in the conception of, of God's son is also brought forth in, in this line from Isaiah. And this, is, this gets us to this idea of holy land, you know, holy land. John Paul II, just as a preface, says that holiness is the response and the openness of the bride to the gift of the bridegroom. 
And in that line from Isaiah, let the earth open and salvation bud forth, we see an image of the, the bridal openness of creation to the creator. And then the prophet Isaiah says in uh, Isaiah 62, no more shall your land be called desolate, your land shall be called espoused. Mm. So when we say God wants to marry us, you know, this whole theme of theology of the body is, is reading of scripture with this the spousal lens. The Bible begins with the marriage, the marriage of man and woman. It ends with the marriage of Christ and the church. The whole Bible in five words, God wants to marry us. God wants to marry all of creation. The very land is espoused. And to walk in the holy land was a recognition that this is the place where the espousals of God and humanity, the espousals of the creator with all of his creation, they took place hick right here, the scandal of the hick. Mm. And when we were in, when we were at the Jordan River, I was giving a presentation on the meaning of baptism and the catechism says baptism is a nuptial mystery. What does that even mean? Well, it's, it's where we are regenerated in, in the womb of the church. Mm. And, and what happened in the Jordan is like the reverse of baptism in this sense. When we are baptized, the water cleanses us mm-hmm. and the water regenerates us. But when Christ was baptized, it was in reverse, so to speak, that he cleansed the waters. Mm. He injected the waters with the capacity to give divine life. This, this is, and by the way, the Jordan River Valley is the lowest point on earth. Quite literally, the lowest point on earth, below sea level. Mm-hmm. This is a, a, a sense of the divine bridegroom entering into the very depths of the earth, the very mm-hmm. womb of the earth. And this, this again, being in the holy land, this is what came out for me in such a powerful way that, that I'm in the womb of the earth. I'm in the womb of the earth. This is where the earth opened and brought forth a savior. Hello, hello. And it was so, even as I say it, it's hitting me even more. There is this moment in Bethlehem and there's this old, ancient, beautiful cathedral over the site believed to be the place of the cave where Christ was born. And you have to descend below the main altar into this holy chamber mm. where Christ was born. And, and the very... There are these, these tapestries on this very narrow passage you had to walk through, these beautiful tapestries down into this cave where you could kiss the spot. And it, I just, I, it felt like I was walking into the holiest of places, and it was like walking into the womb of the earth. I don't know how else to say it. Wow. It was so holy, and having that perspective from theology, the body was just... Yeah, it was uh, like the ideas I had had. It was the ideas were no longer just ideas. They they became more and more lived experiences with the holy land. This land that had opened. What is holiness? It is the openness and response of the bride to the gift of the bridegroom. And this is the land that opened to receive the eternal bridegroom 
and those espousals between heaven and earth became all the more real in this place, this scandalous, beautiful place where God chose to espouse creation to himself. It was awesome. And you were there with a group of pilgrims. There were 50-some uh, 57 pilgrims. 57. And I'm sure, you know, a bonding time for Very everyone. for everybody. You had yeah. a wonderful tour guide, just well, kind of bringing some humor. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I have to say something about our tour guide. Yeah. His name was Fote, F-O-T-E-H, Fote. And I just want to give a shout out to Select International, our touring company, the pilgrimage company who who just made everything work behind the scenes and they chose Fote for our group. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad they chose this man. He was such a blessing to us all. And mm -hmm. he and I really bonded and and became in our 10 days together, we felt like deep brothers. And he said to me, Christopher, I, I'm 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 a tour guide, and we tour guides. We we don't learn anything from anybody. We we know everything, right? But I learned from you. I learned you're my brother, my friend, my friend. You're my brother. We you you taught me taught me things I never knew, and it was really coming alive for him. This theology of the body, you know, he has all this, a wealth of knowledge about the the Holy Land, which is awesome. But he was seeing it himself with new eyes as he was listening to the presentations I was giving about theology of the body, and he was so humble in receiving that and allowing it to enrich him and he, his his life was was changed in a beautiful beautiful powerful way i mean i have the privilege of seeing this happen very often when people hear theology of the body for the first time you know why haven't i ever heard this i've been catholic my whole life but to journey with him over those 10 days and see how impactful it was to him was really really beautiful and i want to share a couple things just gems of insights that I learned from Fote mm -hmm. that I never knew, you know, and I'm, I am not ignorant of my Catholic faith. I've spent my whole adult life yeah. for the last 30 years diving in, you know, yeah. this is my life. This is what I do. But the the gems that I took away from him here, here's just one that I'll, I'll share that was really eye-opening. So we're in Bethlehem mm -hmm. and we are looking out from these caves where the shepherds lived. Okay. And where they raised these lambs. And this is where the angels appeared to them and said, uh, go to this other cave and you'll see this sign. You'll see a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. This will be a sign for you, the mm -hmm. scripture says. Well, I've read that, uh, uh, you know. Many times. Many, many times. Mm-hmm. And not understood what it really meant. Yeah. And Fote I'll tell you, to me, it sounded like, okay, because we said it and you see it, that's like, okay, well, you're seeing what we said you'd see. So that's a sign yeah. that you can believe us or something. Yeah, that's, that's, well, that's a very simple yes. way to understand that's it. That's the way I had always heard gotcha. it as well. But there's much more. I've already told you the story. Yep. So you know where this is going. Yeah. So one thing I learned major eye-opener was the lambs that these shepherds were raising were the sacrificial lambs for the temple. Mm -hmm. Bethlehem would raise the lambs and ship them over to the temple in Jerusalem, which is not all that far away, and these were the lambs of sacrifice. And to be a lamb of sacrifice, you had to be without blemishes. Right. Uh, you, you couldn't have any broken bones in the lamb or they couldn't be sacrificed. Well, lambs, especially newborns, as they're learning to walk, are prone to break limbs. And so, 
the shepherds, this is what I learned from Fote, the shepherds, first of all, they were born in these caves. The lambs were born in these caves. Mm -hmm. They would then wrap the lambs in these swaddling bands, these swaddling clothes to bind their legs so that they wouldn't break their legs when they were shipped to Jerusalem for the sacrifice. Then they would lay the lamb wrapped in swaddling clothes into a manger and then take care of the next lamb that's about to be born. Mm. So when the the angel says to the shepherds, go to this other cave and you'll see a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger, that to, you, this will be a sign for you. Yeah. Right? They knew this was the Lamb of God. This was the chosen sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, just as John the Baptist would reveal 30 years later. The shepherds walking into that cave, beholding the baby in the manger, wrapped in swelling clothes, the revelation, the sign was they were beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the ultimate sacrifice. Wow. Astounding. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome stuff. And doesn't the Lord whisper things in our hearts as well that prepare us for things in the future and we don't even know that's what he's about? Yeah. He's so generous with all of us. And that that are particular to us. Mm -hmm. Right. God was speaking the language of those shepherds. Yeah. And God knows the language of your heart, Wendy, and he knows how to speak to your heart. He knows the language of my heart. And he knows what would be a sign for my heart. Yeah. And every listener out there, you are unique and unrepeatable. And God knows how to speak the language of, of your heart. There is another thing, just another insight I learned from Fote that is worth passing along. There are so many things I learned from him. But this was another one of those aha moments. And you kind of saw Jesus' sense of humor here, which if you don't know what I'm about to share, you, you, you don't know the significance of it, but it's so meaningful when you hear it. So it's the catch of fish after mm-hmm. Jesus is raised from the dead, which by the way, when Jesus says, meet me in Galilee, you know, being there, you get the lay of the land. That's a hundred mile walk. Uh, that, you know, th- when Jesus says to the disciples. So he rose in Jerusalem. He rose in Jerusalem and he says, tell my disciples to meet me in Galilee. That's like, <laughs> tell my disciples to go take a seven day hiking trip a hundred miles up to Galilee and I'll meet them there. That's a long way. Anyway, so after the resurrection, Peter is fishing and there's that miraculous catch of fish and they catch 153 fish. Well, uh, Fote was saying that in Hebrew, numbers correspond to letters and words. And 153, when translated into letters and words, means I am God. Wow. So when they're counting up these fish mm. and they re- they realize like Jesus has a hidden message right in the number of fish that they caught wow. of who he is. Just astounding little things like that were popping throughout the pilgrimage. It really was a life-changing experience. I, I urge anybody out there, if you have the chance to go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, seriously to consider it. We we will go back. It probably won't be for another two years. We have other pilgrimages in the meantime, uh, and I might as well mention what they are, so if you're interested in them, you can mark your calendars. This summer, the Theology of the Body Institute is leading a pilgrimage to Italy with uh, my colleague Bill Dunahy and Father Leo, the cooking priest. You may know of him. 
The pilgrimage is called Food, Faith, and Beauty. It's from August 9th to the 20th. You can learn more by just clicking in the show notes. Go to our website and learn more about that pilgrimage. We are also in 2021. We don't have the specific dates yet, but we are going to be planning a pilgrimage to Fatima and to the sites of the Spanish mystics. So Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. We will keep you posted on those dates as well. Mm. Yeah, so pilgrimage, there's there's just something that happens. I, I love the different formats that I, I work in. You know, I love mm-hmm. coming to a parish to do a live event. Uh, we have, while I'm mentioning that, I might as well mention, uh, we were just about to launch uh, a new phase of our tour of the Made for More event, and we have several events coming up this spring. Uh, You might want to just go to our website and check if we're coming to your area. Uh, We're going to be all over the the U.S., East Coast, West Coast, and Midwest. So check out if we're coming to your area. I love love doing these live events. Mm -hmm. I love teaching the courses, uh, the five-day intensives that I teach through the Institute. But there's something about the format of a pilgrimage that allows a depth of exploration and a, you go through an experience together that is unique and really special. I really felt a deep bond with everybody uh, by the end, and it was sad to say goodbye. Yeah, I think it it is in some ways it has a, a rejuvenating effect. It's like a vacation retreat, deep focused learning combination that's pretty unique and and really life giving. Yeah, and the, the, the real the real pilgrimage is the pilgrimage of the heart. You learn so much about the interior journey, mm-hmm. even through some of the hardships. You know, there's always something that goes wrong or something in the schedule that we, you have to be flexible. We had one, thanks, thanks be to God, only one day of rain, but we were walking around in the rain for quite some time. And, but all of that adds to the adventure of it. Yeah. One, one morning we woke up at Gosh, we had to be on the bus at 4.45 a.m. to do the Stations of the Cross on the Via Dolorosa where Christ himself walked. But doing that in the dark, in the quiet of the wee hours of the morning and arriving at the Basilica where he was crucified, so powerful. Just to go on that journey with others takes you on a deep journey of the heart. So I really urge anybody out there listening, if you are interested in going on a pilgrimage with us to check them out and and consider coming with us. Mm -hmm. And also we invite you to support this work. We invite you to become a patron of this work. Your monthly support, your monthly patronage allows us to do what we do. And in return, we have lots of things that we want to share with our patron community, ongoing formation in this theology of the body. We really have some exciting plans in the coming year for our patron community. So consider that as well. Mm -hmm. That was really beautiful to hear you just talking about the blessings of this trip. And I'm grateful to, as I said earlier, to receive them through you. And I hope it also blesses so many of our listeners. You know what I can't wait for, Wendy? Mm, What? Is the time. (laughs) You know what I'm going to say. When I get to go. When you get to go. Yeah. I know people often ask me, do you go on his trips? And it is not very practical for our lives for me to do that right now. But you know what? But it's coming. Life has different stages. So I'll get there. It's on the horizon. Can't (laughs) wait to experience those things with Mm -hmm. you. 
Till next time, everybody, remember you are an indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift of life and love. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes.